Hey, this is Chase. A real quick note before I start, there are actually two versions of this podcast. This is the short version, meaning that I've cut out about 20 minutes of side discussions from this episode. I personally think all the side discussions are interesting and worth listening to, but if you do want a more compact discussion, this version of the episode is for you. If you want a more in-depth discussion, check out the long version, which was published immediately after this one. It should be in your podcast feed now. All right, back to the episode. Welcome back to the U.S. Naval History Podcast, where we are, in fact, today not going to talk about U.S. Naval History because we're going to talk about something very different, but at least as interesting, which is ancient naval warfare. And with me to discuss is an absolute expert in the field of ancient warfare, Professor Brett Devereaux, who is the most engaging, most interesting historian whose work I've ever read. He is the professor I wish I had in college, someone I have learned an amazing amount from, primarily in his excellent blog, acoop.blog, and someone I've wanted to get on the show for a really long time. Welcome, Brett. Great to be here. So you gave me some reading material uh, prior to us talking, but can you give the audience a background on ancient navies and maybe the two-minute primer on ships they used and how they were really different than the navies of the American era, which began at the very last days of sail and then transitioned to early steam-powered ships, and then into the big-gun armored cruiser and battleship era, and then finally into the long-range strike era that we're still in today. Yeah, so naval warfare in the ancient Mediterranean, um, from when we can start to see it clearly, which is really the 5th century or so BC, um, is when we our sources get good enough that we can mostly tell what's going on. Through the Middle Ages is based around galleys. Um, and galleys are... Um, wide-ranging term for oared warships. And the nature of these ships, right, they tend to be long, they tend to be narrow, and while you are traversing generally outside of combat, they do have sails, but in combat they're relying on large numbers of rowers, often a couple hundred rowers, to provide the motive power that moves these ships around. And that propulsion is really important because these ships primarily engage by ramming. And so their ability to move fast is both how they maneuver in combat, but also it is their striking power. Um, and so you have, for instance, you know, ancient versions of this. I think a lot of people will be familiar with the Greek trireme, which the tri and trireme is because if you sort of took a vertical slice of the ship, you would find that on each side of the ship, port and starboard, there are three rowers stacked vertically, thus try three banks of oars. As you get out of antiquity, these kinds of warships continue. There, there's some developmental jumps, but medieval warships generally develop out of late Roman, basically patrol boats, which have a, a similar sort of design. And these develop into medieval and Renaissance galleys. They still rely on massed rowers, although they stack their rowers horizontally rather than vertically. And they're still remarkably similar in a lot of ways. Renaissance war galleys are about the same size with about the same crew at about the same displacement as ancient galleys. And so there's this broad period where this kind of warfare organized around galleys, the limitations of galleys and the advantages of galleys defines fighting in the Mediterranean. And that's a lot of what I focus on. And that sort of goes to show you know, the remarkably fast pace of technological change today compared to any other point in human history where it's inconceivable that we have the same basic design of ship over the course of thousands of years now. I mean, it would be utterly, utterly obsolete in a century um, and probably significantly less. Um, but with the technology that we have now and have had for the past couple hundred years, something that I didn't know, again, before you sent me some reading material, was the essentially non-Mahanian nature of naval warfare in the ancient era. And this sounds really dumb in the way that once you encounter a super obvious and retrospect concept always does, but... Mahanian naval theory has basically held true for all of modern naval history, which is primarily what I'm familiar with. And so the concept that ancient galleys are not these tremendously expensive and complex capital goods and the limiting factor used to choke off the enemy's access to the sea was basically something that I hadn't even thought of and had never worked into my mental concept of the naval world. Right. We sort of... We sort of assume we have we have Mahan and 
we assume, because certainly Mahan purports to be presenting a theory of naval power that is applicable across all periods. That's what he thinks he's doing. And so when you find that, like, ah, there's actually a very broad period of history where naval warfare is non-Mahanian, you're like, okay, that's striking, to say the least. So just to clarify what I mean by Mahanian versus non-Mahanian, right? So Mahan's thinking just the purpose of the sea is a great, it's a great common, it's a highway. Um, the purpose of naval power is to achieve, quote unquote, command of the sea. You have access to the highway. Your opponent does not have access to the highway. You can move through the lanes of communication down the highway and your opponent cannot. And in Mahan's vision, the way you do this is to destroy the enemy battle fleet and then you blockade their ports. And he is thinking with the British experience in the 1600s and 1700s and the early 1800s. This is the historical model he's thinking with, although he does gesture at older periods. And during and, this era, Britain had established itself as the dominant maritime power initially in European and North Atlantic waters, and then slowly expanding to the rest of the globe. And with that, they became the most dominant nation in Europe, overtaking France, which had a much larger population because they controlled the commerce and then they controlled the money and it sort of created this self-perpetuating flywheel of England being rich and powerful and consistently beating out the Spanish and the French and really all comers in Europe to become, you know, Britain. Right. And this is, of course, this is also part of Mahan's argument is essentially he's saying, look, sea power trumped land power, that Britain's ability to control the sea counteracted their failures on land and indeed meant that even though Britain did not have the strongest land army, it became the preeminent power in this period, um, which you can see this as a sort of institutional rivalry positioning. Obviously, Mahan is writing this mm -hmm. as a naval officer, and he is writing this with an eye towards U.S. military funding. And indeed, he is writing this on the cusp of the United States deciding to really develop a great power navy for the first time though sort of the it, it, very late 1800s early right, 1900s early 1900s um when i teach naval warfare i use a mahan quote as one of these touchstones where he whipped to the graduating class at annapolis well we're going to get our new navy now what are we going to do with it um but it sort of speaks to the moment he's in that the united states is just making the decision to build this kind of navy and he's providing historical justification for it that like this is what it's capable of so that's mahan in a box um what's really striking is that absolutely age of sail warships function the way mahan describes i i think there's more argument about age of steam warships functioning the way mahan describes but mahan is wrong for the age of oars and these ships do not work the way he imagines which doesn't make naval warfare unimportant it just makes it really really different but and ultimately the title of his book was The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, 1660 to 1783. And that was pretty close to the end of the Age of Sail era. And it was a great analysis for that era. And we'll see about the future, but I think it's held largely true even today. And with some modifications, you would say. But that was true precisely because we were at a technological moment with the Age of Sail that allowed that, which was extremely not the case with galleys. Yes, it's technologically contingent, which is fascinating. Um, that it is not a universal rule of how navies work. It is a technologically contingent rule. So you can really think of the way that galleys don't work this way in two directions, one of which is their cost structure and the other of which is their operational capability. The operational capabilities may actually be easier to explain, so we can start there. Um, right, Mahan imagines the point of destroying an enemy's battle fleet is to deny them access to the sea. And so he imagined ships that can, of course, achieve that. And Britain repeatedly achieved that with blockades. The British strategy eventually, most especially in the Napoleonic Wars, was to bottle up France's fleets in their ports, prevent the French fleets from concentrating, and thereby cut France off from the sea. And in particular, right, to cut France off from being able to invade Britain. Um, and what's striking immediately is that galleys can't do any of that. Um, age of sail warships are able to stay out at sea for a really long time. You load an age of sail warship, you load it up with a crew and some biscuits and some water and just an awful lot of rum. And it can stay out at sea for months and months and months. 
you can sail these ships halfway around the world. Um, to resupply, all you need is to duck into any neutral port where you can buy more biscuits and rum because those are generally available goods. And right. so you can get naval campaigns, for instance, Nelson chasing the combined Franco-Spanish fleet halfway across the Atlantic one way and then halfway across the Atlantic the other way before finally finding them pretty close to where he started off the coast of Spain, somewhat ironically. Um, you can have that kind of a campaign with age of sail warships because they have long what we would call operational endurance. You can keep these ships out at sea. Likewise, you can take your naval squadron and you can say, I want to blockade that port. Well, you can just sit your naval squadron off of that port and leave them there for four months. Um, so long as they have some way to get fresh water or more rum. And you can engage the blockade in that way. And you can interdict the enemy's commercial shipping that goes back and forth. But you don't need to even interdict most of it because you need to interdict some reasonable percentage. And then the insurance premiums will take care of the rest. And because a ship is not profitable off one voyage if even if you catch right. a third of the ships the ships needs to make many 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 voyages to be profitable and so you have essentially stifled the enemy's commerce and great example for american history is the union blockade of the confederacy right. right that was the blockade airtight you know by the end it was primarily by capturing the south's ports but before that it was a very loose blockade but that's all that was needed it kept the big slow ships away so you could have you know these fast ships uh, that would get right, caught out and guns runners. in. Right, the blockade runners would get caught out, get guns in, etc. But that didn't make a dent. In the meanwhile, you captured some non-trivial percentage of them, and that cost a lot of money. Right, and of course, age of sail warships. You can also not only can you leave your blockade fleet out there for a while, you can leave commerce raiders out there for a while too. Right, you can just drop half a dozen frigates to cause mayhem in the Caribbean, and they can just be there. Um, age of ore warships work differently, and this has to do with their propulsion. Because in order for these ships to be combat effective, you have to pack them to the gills with crew. Um, I think the the statistic, and this I'm rattling off of the top of my head, but there is something like two to four tons of warship per every crew member on your average age of sail warship. The ratio is flipped for a galley. So a trireme might displace about 50 tons, and it has a crew of about 200. So you've got about four men per ton on that ship. And most of that crew, the overwhelming majority, about 180 of those men are rowers. Um, and then the remaining number are the Marines on the deck for boarding actions, and then what the Greeks call the hyperesia, the command crew, the navigator, the helmsman, the triarch who's in command, several other kinds of specialists that you need. Um, and the reason you're packing so many rowers on the ship is, again, this concern about speed, that your primary weapon is a big ram on the front of the ship in the ancient world. And because ramming is your primary method of attack, speed is offense. Speed is your offensive power. The equivalent what a, a, a dreadnought would measure with barrel diameters and weight of shell. In essence, a galley warship like a trireme measures with speed. And at the same time, speed is defense. These ships are not really armored. Um, you're not going to really be able to armor a wooden warship in a way that it's going to resist being hit by another wooden warship going 20, 30 miles an hour. You know, you get hit by a 50-ton object going that fast. You're going to feel it. So these ships aren't really armored. They can't survive a ramming attack by an enemy. So speed is defense. You want to be the more maneuverable ship. These ships aren't generally designed to ram head on head. What you want to do is maneuver so that you're striking an enemy ship on the side. So the more maneuverable and faster you are, the more likely you are to be the one striking them on the side than you are to be struck on your side. You can sort of dodge. And so speed is offense and speed is defense for these ships. And so they're designed with that in mind every square inch of space that can fit a rower fits a rower. And that's how you get this many rowers on what are not enormous ships. The length over deck on a trireme is, is usually about 35, 36, 37 meters, about 120 feet. Um, these are not enormous warships. 
they're, they're not small, but they're not in, in, enormous. Um, now, trireme is covered over. The rowers are below decks, but the main deck is essentially split down the center. That's how you access the lower decks. And it has to be to provide enough airflow so that your rowers don't suffocate themselves as they're rowing. Uh, a major design concern. <laughs> and obviously, the thing you're worried about is that if your rowers aren't enclosed, then your opponent can throw javelins and shoot arrows and whatever straight into the mass of your rowers who are packed shoulder to shoulder, cheek to jowl, so that you're not going to miss. And so you do want to enclose and protect the rowers in combat. This makes a lot of sense. But yeah, it, I just ramping up the unpleasantness of serving on a Greek trireme, um, there are no berths, bunks, or hammocks on a trireme. You sleep on the bench you row because there's no space. You've got 200 people in this trireme. Uh, let's say lavatory facilities are pretty minimal. There is no personal or private space. And you're, you're, again, you're sleeping, you're sleeping where you row. Um, we know that in the Renaissance, galleys that had been at sea for a while, the Venetians would actually intentionally sink them as the only way of cleaning out the god-awful nastiness that accumulated in them from having a couple hundred people crammed into that space. Um, you don't hear of any equivalent wow. for ancient warships, but these would not have been pleasant working environments by any means. Nevertheless, right, a little bit of unpleasantness from cramped quarters is better than drowning at sea, so you accept all of these compromises because it's what makes the ship maximally fast. Now, getting back to the operational implication, because I want to make sure that we right. get here before we keep getting distracted. So, so, so all these factors, lots of people limit the space because you need to go fast, because that's the way that you yep. survive and kill means that they have severely limited operational endurance. Yeah. And so how long can these guys stay out to sea? Under ideal circumstances, you want to beat your triremes every night. Um, this is good because then your sailors can sleep on land. You can gather food and water as you go. In practice, if you stock the decks, um, a trireme can carry a few days worth of food and water. Remember, the Mediterranean is a saltwater sea, so you do have to bring your water with you, and a lot of it. And, and by doing this, by stocking the decks, you can make unsupported hops from one landmass to the next. So, for instance, if you want to make the hop from the west coast of Greece to the east coast of Italy, or the hop from the southern coast of Sicily to the northern coast of Africa, you can do that. You load up supplies on the deck, and you make your hop. But otherwise, your endurance is limited to just a few days, that these ships can stay out on their own unsupported. You might try to extend that by attaching some essentially supply freighters to the fleet, though often, because of what you're doing, your heavy carrying merchant ships are actually moving men and horses for a land army. So their ability to carry extra supplies for your fleet is limited. And so as a result, of the extremely limited operational endurance of these fleets, they tend to operate in concert with land forces or in friendly waters. Um, and so one of the things we see is that because you need to put these ships on land every so often, they often have to move with a land army paralleling them. Yeah, to protect that. Beaching uh, location? Yeah. Yeah, be yeah beaching. To protect that. you do literally... You do also, for seaworthiness reasons, you actually want to pull these ships out of the water and have them up dry on the beach, which this is invariably baffling to people. This is a warship that you need to dry out every couple of days. Um, but it is the case. The very light construction means that these ships can get waterlogged pretty easily. And so you do need to dry them out. And so this becomes a major concern. But of course, if you only have a few days of operational endurance, there's all sorts of things you cannot do. You cannot sit your fleet in enemy waters and just raid their shipping for months on end. At most, you can make these brief raiding missions against enemy coasts. And even then, you're often forced, as we see, for instance, the Athenians do a couple of times during the Peloponnesian War, you're forced to drop a base on enemy territory for your fleet to operate off of. Um, and the Athenians do this, for instance, in the lead up to the Battle of Sphacteria, also called Pylos. They have to drop a little fort. On, on Sparta's coast so that their fleet can operate off of it. And then that gives the Spartans a location to attack with their land army. So the right, Spartans eventually supply that thing and maintain yes. local military superiority there constantly, yes. which is hard. 
And yeah, in the event the Spartans flub the land attack, um, which, you know, whoops. But um, <laughs> but nevertheless, this is sort of a requirement. So you can't do sort of long-term raiding. You also can't do an unsupported blockade. You can't sit this fleet outside of an enemy city indefinitely and just blockade them. Instead, fleets tend to be used really for three major missions. Mission number one is the transport of an army. That's really simple. I want to get my army somewhere it can't walk. I send it with a fleet. Okay. Force Mission protection. number two is the completion of a siege. I have my army. I am sitting outside of a port city. I have blocked it off from the land side. And those jackasses are supplying themselves by sea. I will bring in my fleet. My fleet will be able to beach safely because my army is right there outside mm -hmm. the city, and then they can block the harbor. Um, and then the third thing is fleet operations to prohibit options one and two, where you <laughs> right. sail out your fleet for the purpose of preventing an enemy fleet from doing the first two things. And this is really all you can do. And so the Mahanian options to close down lanes of supply, to engage in loose or tight blockades of whole enemy coastlines, these aren't available. Um, these ships aren't capable of that. What they can do is transport an army and complete the siege of a single city at a time. And so this breaks one of the core tenets of the Mahanian theory, which is that an unsupported navy can bring the pain after having defeated the enemy's navy to a country without putting boots on the ground in the modern parlance. Right. Um, and so that deals a mortal blow. But there's another aspect of ancient warfare, which is that these galleys are cheap, right? Yeah. So this is this is the the sort of the, the paradox of the cost of these ships. Um, and this is what some of my scholarship is focused on. Um, is that paradoxically galleys were cheap to lose and expensive to keep. Um, and here we get into the cost structure. Now, when I say cheap, I, I should be putting air quotes on the word cheap. Uh, a, a trireme was, in absolute cost, a very expensive thing. 45-ish tons of timber, probably 150 or so kilogram ram in bronze. And keep in mind, these are societies that mint their money in bronze. Um, so the maintenance costs come pretty close to the construction costs annually. Um, then the third element of the cost that we want to consider is the crew. And Thucydides conveniently tells us that the crew costs are one talent a month to pay this crew. So one talent, 6,000 drachmi, and that is the crew cost per month. Um, so the construction cost is roughly equivalent to the maintenance cost for a year or the crew cost for a month for these ships. The result of all of that is that building a new trireme is relatively cheap compared to maintaining one through the sailing season, which was about nine months of the year, plus or minus. Uh, you don't want to take oared warships out on the Mediterranean in winter. That's a great way to have them all sink, as the Romans learn repeatedly to their sadness. Um, so you're not keeping them in operation the whole year, but about seven, eight, nine months of the year. Um, so the cost of crewing these ships would be many, many, many times higher than the cost of building them. And the weird result then is, if you lose a fleet, the treasury is suddenly relieved of a tremendous burden because you no longer have to pay all of those rowers. One does not is, generally need to pay drowned rowers a wage. Which is the exact opposite of the modern conception, which is that fleets are ungodly expensive to build, still extremely expensive to maintain, but a huge portion of the lifetime costs are borne during the construction phase. And for example, the workhorse of the Navy, which are destroyers when currently on flight three DDGs, costs roughly $2 billion a piece uh, right. to build. And, and, that, and this is a relatively small ship right and when we're going to carriers we're doing 12 billion plus and then you have the air wing obviously and then you have all the ships that support the carrier and so we're looking at tens of billions of dollars to create one carrier strike group and so if in battle a carrier strike group is lost and the navy wants to replace this 
it is this is a disaster, right? Quite frankly, this is a, a non-negligible line item on the national budget. And not only that, it takes forever, right? You can't overnight build a destroyer or a carrier or any other major combatant capital ship because it's just so complex. And even if money is no object, get the shipyard working 24 hours a day under floodlights. It just, you cannot pump these out in a few months. It is just literally impossible. And so right. and a loss actually... is a disaster. Not only were triremes relatively cheap to build compared to their operating costs, though, again, I do want to stress that, like, throwing down the, like, one talent plus to build one of these ships from scratch, like, that is a lot of money in, in the ancient world. Um, it's just small compared to their running costs. But not only were they cheap to build compared to the running costs, they could be built very fast. Um, and we have here for the Romans repeated references to whole fleets being built from scratch over the winter. So that like the Romans have some disaster in the sailing season, the sea closes. And then over the course of three or four months over the winter, the Romans build a whole new fleet or build a ton of new ships. Um, we have some reports of them being built this fast. Um, famously, this, this continues all the way into the Renaissance. You know, the Ottoman fleet is almost entirely lost at the Battle of Lepanto in 1571. And by 1572, there is an Ottoman battle fleet at sea of fresh ships built with green timber so they don't perform as well but they could get the fleet in the water that quick by contrast i mean building an age of sail warship took a long time and building modern warships takes years you're limited by the complexity of the task you're limited by dockyard space one of the advantages mm -hmm. of these ships being relatively light is you can build a trireme in a shed on a beach um, you don't need the sort of huge, highly limited, highly specialized facilities that you need to lay down the keel of an aircraft carrier. And so the result was that if you lost your fleet, you could often build a new one almost immediately and head right back out. And so what we see very visibly in both the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta and the First Punic War between Rome and Carthage is that one side will suffer a disastrous battle, lose most of their fleet, and then money permitting, be back out the next year, um, right? Athens loses its entire fleet, essentially, the great bulk of it in the Sicilian expedition, and within a couple of years has rebuilt back to strength and is going at it again. Um, the Spartans proceed to then spend the next few years losing whole fleets to the Athenians, but the Spartans are being financed by the Persian Empire, um, the Persians recognizing that Spartan victory would be good for them politically, so they're funding it. And here is my obligatory jab at Sparta that everyone's like, the Spartans were the great defenders of Greece against the Persians. Um, nonsense. Sparta spent most of its time as Persia's ally in Greece against Athens and Thebes. But the Spartans are getting funded by the Persians, and so they can immediately rebuild their fleet too. And the, because your rowers are generally drawn from the lower classes, they're expensive to pay, but you're not likely to run out of them. As opposed to, for instance, your land armies, which because most of these societies require that soldiers provide their own equipment, the state doesn't have the ability to issue you a spear and a shield and a breastplate and all of that stuff. So what you do is you recruit men who are wealthy enough to do that themselves. And... That's a limited supply. But for rowers, you can recruit the very poor, and they do. Um, and so you're not as likely to run out. Um, although eventually, because these fleets are so large and there are so many rowers, you can actually get into a situation where you are probably placing serious strains on your ability to get rowers. But nevertheless, the result is that where the defeat of a large fleet in, say, the Age of Sail often meant that that country couldn't meaningfully contest the waves, sometimes for decades. The loss of a fleet in the Age of Oars, if you had the financial and demographic resources, you could be out at sea next year. Um, and indeed, and we, we see that. Um, we see that repeatedly where you know the, the Romans bash up a Carthaginian fleet at Echnomus in 256, and the Carthaginians are out next year in 255 for a battle off of Cape Hermium, which they also lose very badly. And then the Carthaginians have a fleet in the water that you're following. 
um, that there is just, there's no delay. I mean, the Carthaginians by that point have lost a couple hundred ships over the course of two years, and they're, they're still good to go. Um, the Polybius is like, well, they saw an opportunity, so they refit out their ships again, built some new ones, and they're back out there. And, and that's inconceivable today, right? You know, Age of Sail, continuing through the modern era, if you lost hundreds of frontline ships, there simply does not exist the capacity to rebuild that quickly. And so I want to, you know, sort of... I mean, look at something like Trafalgar, right? The Franco-Spanish defeat at, at Trafalgar clears the waves for the British for a decade. Right. Yeah. And so those are the two key points that I have seen so far from talking with you, which is one, that the ships were cheap and fast to build. And so that meant that no, the actual physical ship was not the limiting capacity. So that meant that destroying the enemy fleet was a tactical instead of a strategic victory. And you could help you blockade the port. You know, as you were talking about earlier, one of the objectives of ancient navies or free the blockade, but it would not win the war for you. And two is the lack of staying power. So you have defeated the enemy fleet. Now what? You got to go home. You got to unwaterlog your ships. You got to go resupply. And so you cannot cut off the commerce and the trade flows and the coastal transportation and the army transportation that your enemy will have. And that breaks Mahan. I mean, it utterly breaks yeah. Mahan as a concept because two of the very core tenants are not there and that sea control is very hard can't use it for power projection and then two you have this concentrated battle fleet and you defeat the enemy concentrated battle fleet well you know good luck now you have to do this every year finance is pending forever right and that's and the way to think about it is that a victory with galleys creates a window of opportunity for you to now do things you have your big engagement you defeat the enemy fleet you now have the rest of this sailing season, maybe next year, probably not, to actually get things done with your fleet, whether that is, say, transporting an army. The Battle of Ecnomus I mentioned, which is the largest galley battle on the Mediterranean at any point in history. The purpose of the engagement is that the Romans are attempting to invade North Africa, where Carthage is, and the Carthaginians are attempting to stop them. So the Romans win the battle. This opens the window of opportunity to drop their army in North Africa. Um, now, in the event, the Roman army then in North Africa somewhat uncharacteristically loses. It's defeated on land by the Carthaginians. And so the whole thing comes to nothing. Um, right. The Roman fleet has to come back the next year to evacuate their army from North Africa, which leads to the Battle of Cape Permaiam, where the Carthaginians attempt to stop the Romans from evacuating their army. And the Romans win the battle, evacuate their army, and then get caught in a storm and lose most of the ships and men anyway. Um, hmm. It's two years of maximum effort for no gain by anyone whatsoever. Um, but you get these sort of moments in other cases, right? Roman victory enables the Roman fleet to come down and the Roman army is already besieging a Carthaginian city on Sicily and the fleet can complete that siege and then the city can be taken very quickly. You know, of course, this is also the story of how the Peloponnesian War ends, that the Spartans finally managed to win a major naval battle. And then their admiral, a fellow by the name of Lysander, recognizes the strategic implication and immediately sails his fleet to the Athenian port at the Piraeus. This is the port of Athens because the Spartan army is operating outside of Athens. He can complete the siege and he compels Athens to surrender because he has this window of opportunity before the Athenians can recover where he can close down their naval supply lines with the army outside the gate and enforce terms, but it's a narrow window that he has to operate in. Because if he waited a year or two, the Athenians might well have raised a new fleet. And then it's 50-50, or probably and less then, than 50-50, given the, uh, the Spartans' yeah, track record at sea. Yeah, you're back to square one. And so a, a major victory at sea really does generate these narrow opportunities to make gains. Those gains can be very significant, but they do tend to be narrow. Um, now, the one thing that naval dominance can get you that does end up feeling a little Mahanian is that if your fleet is powerful enough that your enemy doesn't think they can beat it, um, you get a lot of freedom of action on the waves, even if the enemy has some small fleet. And so, for instance, when we get to the second Punic War between Rome and Carthage, 
the Carthaginians seem to have learned their lesson that they're not going to beat the Romans at sea. And so while they maintain a small naval force, they don't make an effort to build up to fight the larger Roman fleet. And as a result, the Romans are able to sort of go where they will in the Mediterranean in terms of moving armies by sea, whereas Carthage has to be a lot more careful, which is really limiting for the Carthaginians in the end, because this is the war where Hannibal has crossed the Alps and he's operating with the Carthaginian army in Italy. And the Carthaginians can't really support or resupply that army by sea because the Roman navy is in the way. Um, right, their knowledge is that if they loaded a fleet full of supplies for Hannibal and set sail out of Carthage, a Roman fleet would meet them on their way, um, would attempt to interdict them, and that they might lose that battle. So how, if at all, does galley warfare change from the BCs through you know the intervening 2,000 plus years? We have Lepanto, we mentioned a couple times, big battle between the Ottoman Turks who were ascendant in Europe and the Eastern Mediterranean, um, certainly, and sort of defeated by a combined uh, Spanish-Venetian fleet. Mm -hmm. And this sort of seemed as a big turning point, you know, had any of the strategic consideration changed in the intervening 2,000 plus years? So the strategic geography and the operational considerations are relatively similar. But by the time we get to the Middle Ages, there have been some design changes which have caused tactical shifts in how these ships are employed. Um, so to sort of briefly give the family tree of galleys, um, the sort of oldest warships that we see that seem to mount some of the first rams in the Mediterranean, we, uh, the Greeks called Pentaconters, 50 rower ships. These are single deck galleys. Um, we get development into first biremes and then triremes. And the trireme as a warship is what I would describe as ram and sink oriented. It, you can board with these ships. They have Marines on the deck for the purpose, but these are not primarily boarding ships. The good navies, like the Athenian Navy that know what they're doing, what you do is you ram the enemy, and once you've made that impact, you row backwards, you backwater, and the water floods in where you've rammed them, their ship tips over, and they all drown. Hooray. Um, you can board and capture, but it's not the primary objective. And so what you have for your ram is what we call a waterline ram. And literally when the ship is in the water, just the itsy bitsy tippy top of the ram would have been visible cutting through the wave. So you get that hit right on the waterline where it's most devastating. These ships then get bigger, right? So the trireme is the largest warship afloat in the 400s and early 300s. This is what the Greeks are fighting the Persians with, what the Athenians and Spartans are fighting with. As we get further into the 300s, the Greeks experiment with and the Romans and Carthaginians adopt larger warships, adding more rowers. So we get a quadrireme, a four, and then a quinquireme, a five, and then sixes, sevens, eights, nines, tens, twelves, a couple of fourteens, some sixteens, a few twenties. So you get these larger and larger warships. Then, of course, the Romans win. They conquer the Mediterranean. And they demobilize the navy, right? Not entirely, but its purpose changes. It becomes a patrol navy. It becomes a coast guard. The Romans establish permanent naval bases around Italy. They establish a permanent fleet under Augustus, but its purpose is increasingly patrol. And so the big trireme shipbuilding tradition dies out. Instead, the Romans pick up a galley tradition from what today would be the Balkans, the Balkan coast. They're, these are smaller galleys. They're handy. They can go up river. They're a little more boarding oriented. And these are the Liburnians. And the Roman Navy is eventually dominated by these sort of patrol craft. Well, when the Roman Empire starts to come apart and you get large scale naval warfare again, um, the old big galleys of the ancient world aren't available anymore. So the armies of the Rashidun Caliphate and the Byzantine Empire and so on, they instead take these Liburnians. And, and by uh, not which, available, you mean everybody's completely forgotten about them? Well, they they forgotten how yeah, to build them? them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, yes, they've been forgotten. And so instead, they size up these patrol ships into what becomes the Eastern Mediterranean Dromon. And that becomes the origin point for medieval galley building. Um, that entails a few design changes. As I mentioned, the rowers on these medieval galleys are stacked horizontally rather than vertically. Um, that's actually a much easier rowing pattern to manage. Uh, so that's 
a simplifying measure that's part of why medieval navies can make use of less experienced crew and why they feel like they can rely on lower status rowers, including enslaved rowers. The other big change is the change in ram, um, that the ancient ram was a waterline ram. It was designed to sink, whereas the medieval ram is a boarding ram. Um, it looks like a really overgrown prow, so it's up out of the water. And the idea is that it collides with the upper part of the enemy ship and embeds there and provides a stable bridge that your Marines can now cross to board the enemy ship. And then to make sure that you have the advantage here, you usually build um, a little castle, a forecastle, a foxhole, if you will. Um, on the front Pixel. of the galley is a fighting platform so that as your Marines are going over, your archers and crossbowmen can overshoot the enemy deck to clear it for your guys to cross. And so this creates the form of the Renaissance galley, and it is a boarding-oriented ship rather than a ram and sink-oriented ship. Now, before we get to Lepanto, of course, we have one more really big design change. Cannon. Oh, uh, yeah, um, of course. The introduction of artillery into this. And at first, this is smaller guns that are intended as anti-personnel weapons. You mount them up on the foxhole, you fire them down onto the enemy deck. But eventually they are mounting sort of ship-breaking guns. Um, and what happens is that that foxhole sort of castle ends up as a gunnery station with your main guns flanking the boarding bridge so that as you're closing into ram, you can fire your big guns at the enemy. Um, and one of the interesting things in Lepanto is that Lepanto actually happens, the last great galley battle, in a transitional moment where the Ottoman fleet is still very much boarding focused and its cannon are very much secondary, whereas the um, Holy League, that's what they call themselves and it's convenient. The Catholic um, maritime powers of Europe, basically. Yeah, exactly. Their ships are increasingly emphasizing cannon. Um, Part of this is they bring some galley asses, some hybrid galley sailing ships that are set up with their, their guns in broadside so that they can mount more of them. They have six of these. They tow them in front of the fleet, though two of them end up catastrophically out of position. But they also load up their galleys with more cannon than usual. And the Venetians saw the boarding beaks off of their ships so that they can get more space to mount more cannon. Um, which, like, that's a hell of a choice, is you're like, I'm going to remove this weapon system in favor of that weapon system. Mm -hmm. um, that they're making that sort of intentional yeah. choice and development. And so Lepanto is taking place at this moment of transition where gunpowder is going from an auxiliary part of a boarding-oriented ship to the primary element of the ship that maybe can also board sometimes. Um, of course, the bad news for galley enthusiasts everywhere is that a galley, because its broadside is taken up by oars, can only really mount its cannon fore and aft. And that really limits how many cannon you can mount. And so galleys are kind of doomed by this shift to cannon because a sailing warship that can mount guns across its whole broadside can carry a lot more firepower. And so once you get to the point where battles are going to be decided by how much firepower is carried on the ship, rather than by their handiness and maneuverability in ramming and boarding actions, right? The galley is sort of doomed. Um, and so um, the, final, the final pin as a battle force was the Battle of Cape Saladonia, where you have somewhat a repeat of Lepanto 40-some years earlier, where you have the Ottomans versus the Hastlers this time. And the Spanish basically sail a bunch of galleons into the middle of a... Ottoman galley fleet and crush them, right? Right. And it's five galleons against something like 55 galleys. And the issue is that the galleys just can't charge through the galleons' firepower. The galleons can put enough gunfire, um, right, heavy artillery in the air. And remember, these galleys, speed is offense, speed is defense. They're built light. And so they can't take the hits. Right. They can't, the way a sailing warship could just muscle through your firepower in order to get to its own engagement range because it could take your hits. These ships can't take the hits, um, right? A cannonball raking a galley is cruising through all of those rowers, killing them, scattering, breaking the oars, make it a mess of a thing. These are fragile ships. And so, you know, these galleys attempt to close on the Spanish galleons and get blasted to bits. It's sort of hopeless. 
Um, but while that does cause everyone to recognize like, oh, pure galley navies are a thing of the past, like galleys stick around as auxiliary ships in both the Mediterranean and also in the Baltic. Um, we see a lot of galleys in the Baltic, like through the 1600s into the 1700s. Um, again, because they're really handy in tight spots and in inland seas. It can be nice to have a few, but you're no longer basing your navy around them. Um, cannon, alas, bring an end to the age of galleys. And so ramming goes away, but has one very brief resurgence in the mid-1800s or so. Oh, uh, ironclad right? ramming. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this beautiful moment where everyone is watching the race between firepower and armor. And the concern is that armor may win the race. Um, they're watching things like the Battle of Hampton Roads, where Monitor and Virginia can't really hurt each other. And so they're thinking, well, perhaps we should stick rams on our ships again. And they do. And, and Virginia does have a ram on it. Um, Virginia's ram broke off the day before. But I mean, it's a tempting thought because we have these increasingly powerful steam engines. And so you can get the ship going real fast under any conditions. And at the same time, naval gunnery and the metallurgy and then the uh, the chemical engineering hadn't quite advanced to a point where you could get these really high velocity, um, explosive and armor penetrating shells coming out of rifled, large, long guns. And so uh, you had these ships banging away at each other without much effect. It's like, oh, you know, we'll, we'll get going real fast and we'll, we'll ram them with the full momentum of our nice steamship and that right. it becomes sort of a naval fad in the uh, you know, sort of mid to late 1800s for a little bit. Right. And of course, the other invention that no one is anticipating, how could they, is the self-propelled torpedo, which is actually going to, when you're thinking about, right, what they're thinking when they're putting rams on these ships is like, well, these ships are heavily armored above the waterline. They're not armored below the waterline because it's really hard to hit that with gunfire because um, the water's in the way. If we had some way to deal damage below the waterline, we could do something here. So they're thinking ram. But in the end, the solution, of course, is the self-propelled torpedo. And you know, once that emerges, warships in the really late 1800s, early 1900s, are horrifically vulnerable to, to torpedo strikes if they take them. Um, and then obviously you have torpedo defense systems that emerge later. But like, but nobody in like 1860 can know that in 30 years, this problem is going to be solved by what is essentially an underwater explosive missile. Right, and so eventually armor belts are developed below the water to defend mm -hmm. against a torpedo strike. And, you know- Torpedo nets, torpedo bulges. Right, right. Lots of solutions. And then that, all that has been essentially abandoned today where ships are again, extremely vulnerable to a torpedo strike. And sort of depending on primarily the ability to hunt and kill those submarines when they are still too far away. Right. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens in the next few decades where, you know, I don't think that anyone is not predicting that there are going to be some long range, highly autonomous submarines slash torpedoes, perhaps, you know, sort of one time use submarines slash extremely long range torpedoes. A lot of very smart people are thinking about that and that very well could change the fundamental nature of naval warfare again where uh, the weapon becomes independent from the delivery system in terms of direct kinetic damage under the water well and of course we're already seeing a form of this in the black sea they're not submersible but the armed forces of ukraine right are putting explosives on drone operated speedboats and running them into russian warships and you know, on, on the one hand, I think it's worth noting that it sure does seem like most of these speedboat attacks fail. On the other hand, if you launch a dozen of them and you only sink a frigate once, that's Great a huge deal. win for you. Great deal. Um, and so, and then of course, I mean, we also got just in the past couple of weeks, right, uh, dramatic visual confirmation of how vulnerable port facilities are to long range cruise missiles, mm -hmm. right, with Ukraine putting two ships decisively out of commission it seems like using and a submarine um, just like two days ago or something like that yeah using um using probably storm shadow yeah, yeah but that, that, is that, was the, the, that was the guess i saw yeah and so um I, I think there's no doubt that we are in another technologically transitional period the way lepanto was and no one going into lepanto could know that this would be the last great galley battle or that it would prove 
that gunpowder firepower had reached the point where it could triumph over a boarding focused fleet. Um, you know, Lepanto does demonstrate both of those things, but nobody the day before knew. What they knew was that they were in a moment of transition, that things were moving. Um, we're also in a sort of a moment of transition. There are so many naval technologies right now that have been tested in lab conditions, but haven't been tested in a fight. Um, certainly not between peer navies. There hasn't been a fight between peer navies since World War II. Um, I think we have to admit very low confidence of what, what naval warfare will look like in the event of a great power confrontation. Um, you know, today or 10 years from now or 20 years from now. Of course, if we are very, very lucky, we will also never find out. Correct. I cannot express how much I hope that we do not find out. Right. I don't, I would rather not. So I think we have covered a, a ton of ground. Um, I found this an incredibly interesting conversation. I learned a lot uh, doing the prep for this and then just a lot live right here. Uh, so thank you again. This is Brett Devereaux. He is the author extraordinaire of my favorite historical blog of all time, acoup.blog, A-C-O-U-P.blog. You should absolutely check it out. He also writes a lot for various publications. Yeah, thank you, Brett. Great to be here. It was a so, great time. Do you have any, uh, any recommendations relevant to what we're talking about before we close off? Yeah, I think if folks want to get a sort of beginner's grasp on the First Punic War, which is just an absolutely massive naval war that... Um, is quite complex. You can't go wrong with Krista Steinbe's Rome versus Carthage. Uh, this came out a, a few years back and, and is a pretty good overall coverage of the war that I think people can avail themselves of. That is, unlike a lot of books about ancient military history, is actually obtainable uh, by like normal mortals at a reasonable price. Okay. A, uh, a good metric on any recommendation, no doubt. Um, awesome. So... If you like this podcast, uh, go check out acoop.blog, a collection of unmitigated pedantry. Uh, great blog. Uh, give me a review on iTunes, uh, Spotify, whatever. Write something up. Share it with your friends. And again, thanks a lot, Brett. And until next time, fair winds and following seas.